A little song, I should sing here. A little song of somebody who, when you have children, you dream that they might grow up to some, be something important. And this is a song of frustrated parental love. It starts off, chap singing. Uh, well, I'll have the guitar, shall I? All right. Well, oh, my darling little baby, what will ye grow up to be? The Prime Minister of England or the King of Italy? We waited 40 years or more to see what he would be. He's now a dustman in Kiswick. Oh, dearie, Goompod. This week, I am joined by returning guest, Paul Abbott, a podcaster and musician. And Paul came along to talk about uh, a long playing record from the 1970s. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, so Paul, welcome back to the show. It's lovely to be back here. How nice to be in your company once again. Yeah, we're just speaking just before I press record. We're both, it's, it's Monday afternoon. It's Monday the 11th of July, and it is uh, tropical, <laughs> shall we say? Yeah, yeah. It's for the for the northwest of England. It is a, a little on the um, warm side. Um, I was half considering stripping naked for the purposes of this recording, um, but I record it in the front room, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to cause well, any I mean, neighbours' coronaries. This is, you know, this is art. You've just got to do what you've got to do to get your art out there. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so, Paul, how have you been? What, do you, what have you been up to lately? Well, things are all right at the moment. The main thing I got up to this year was uh, releasing the first album with my band, Good Grief. Oh, of course. Yes, yes so an, our album, Shake Your Faith, came out a couple of months ago. So we've been gigging and um, flogging that particular piece of vinyl to uh, <laughs> the kind people who, who buy it, which luckily is quite a lot at the moment. So, so that's been quite nice. Oh right, so, so that's so, the main thing. So, have you got sort of a quite a strong local following, or is it sort of well nationally, or what? It's it's all down to the the niceness of the DIY punk and indie music scene, you know, around the UK and abroad. Fortunately, because the records out in America as well, uh -huh. and so yes, it's been pretty well supported it's not a massive run of vinyl you can get these days i mean it takes forever to get it pressed so the thing we'll be talking about today you know that's the sort of thing in those days you could get thousands and thousands of copies of any bit of audio on vinyl done like instantly nowadays it takes months and months to get into the queue to get any vinyl made yeah so eventually we got it made and it's been selling all right so if anyone's out there and is fans of bands that sound a bit like super chunk and husker do and all those sorts of American -y bands. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Super you know. Tramp. No, 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 no. I was going to no. raise my hand. Well, <laughs> well, you know, you can listen to it and imagine synthesizers if you want. Well, we'll stick a bit on at the end of this, if that's That'll okay nice. with people, for, for yeah. people to, uh, to get the little flavour. Right, this is probably completely wrong, but is there any two record pressing plants in the whole of Europe or something? It's, I don't know the exact figures, but it wouldn't surprise me. Basically, the, the demand has vastly outstripped, um, you know, the manufacturing ability across the world mm. and of course if you're a big company a big record company you can basically buy in time and space block it out you know record store day and all this stuff keeps the pressing plants full for months and months and months so independent labels and sort of diy projects find it a lot harder to sort of sit into the you know the queue for for records being pressed mm. so yeah, it's it is quite difficult, and uh, I know a lot of bands who've spent a lot of time waiting for their records to come out that they'd sort of perhaps started doing at the start of lockdown, and then lockdown increased demand as well because people were just at home going, "Oh, I'll just make an album then." Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, there you go. But it's very nice when you do get a piece of vinyl in your hand, and it's a thing that you're on and you've made, 
and it's a physical, tangible thing. And, you know, I don't over-fetishise it because we live most of our lives on a digital sort of platform, but it is lovely to see. Absolutely. How long did you agonise over what to call the album and what to have as the uh, cover artwork? Too long. Yeah? <laughs> it's, it's horrible. It's like choosing a band name. It's the worst thing in the world, knowing it's going to be there essentially forever. You know, you've said it, you've decided it, and you have to come up with it. And then also, if you're promoting stuff, people are going to start asking you about it as well. So you've got to know why you've chosen it. And you can't just say, we called it Hens or something like that. or <laughs> Something mad. Um, we were going to call it Swearing for Emphasis, but there wasn't really any purpose to that other than just the joy of the phrase Swearing for <laughs> Emphasis, even though it doesn't have any swear words on whatsoever. I was, so, uh, you know. I was once in a band, you know. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, Mid nineties, so you know, high to Brit pop, and uh, yeah. it was all about that. I was work- I worked in a record shop at the time. I shared a flat with a bunch of people, and we formed this. Uh, one of my flatmates was a drummer, and yeah. and we formed, we formed this group of sorts. And I, I was the lead singer. Or I was going to be the lead singer. The band was called Dark Corner. Oh, yeah, sort of. I think sort mysterious. of mysterious. Yeah, uh, slightly influenced influenced by James, the band James and Placebo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you believe? Oh right, okay. And I was, as I said, I I bleach blonde hair at the time, and I was, you know, about eight stone, ringing wet. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, um, <laughs> I wish I could say that now, um, but I was a lead singer, and um, everything was going splendidly um, until it was very quickly realised that I couldn't sing. Oh dear! Yeah, so I was I was jettisoned. I think we had maybe a half an hour rehearsal, and it came to nothing. It's because I just couldn't hold a note. Uh, but uh, but there you go. And th- I'd like to say that band went on to become Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and what about the podcast? So you, you've got the 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 Beatles, the big Beatles sort out. Um, yes. How's that going? Yes, that- that's great. We've done a two series of the Big Beatles sort out. This is my brother's lockdown project originally, where he decided he was going to rank all the Beatles songs, and I decided I was going to tell him that it was a stupid idea. Um, and that's essentially what happened in the first series. And then we did another series where we looked at films, some of the sort of different odds and sods that didn't fit into the main sort of body of work as it officially exists. Yeah. And we've had a very nice time because it's very celebratory. I know the ranking thing sort of wrangles with some people. Wrangles? That's not the right word. It annoys some people anyway. Rankles. Because of the... Uh, rankles, there mm. you go. Um, because the idea of, like, organising something to say something better or, or worse, it's, you know, it's just it's just a mechanism for us to celebrate the music, really. But when we come back for our third series, which we didn't know we were going to do, but people seem to want us to, we're going to do... All the Beatles, solo Beatles singles from the 70s and rank Ooh, them. Blimey. And because and that's something that neither I nor my brother are madly familiar with. I mean, I'm a huge, huge Beatles fan, but I very rarely actually dug really, really deep into the solo singles. So it's going to be an exciting journey. Excellent. So it's going to be very heavily weighted towards Paul then. I, I that's the only thing. Yeah, we've got to make sure that the uh, mechanism we use doesn't just give us like weeks, week after week <laughs> after week of just Paul's songs, because obviously he produced a lot more and we've uh, we've allowed john's selection to run to his couple in solo stuff in the 60s and a little way just into the 80s in sort of the block of stuff he was making before it becomes you know reissued yeah, and yeah. Re- uh, sort of thing. very good very good and and, and i know that uh, you've you finished your ed, ed mcbain podcast haven't you well, I've got two uh, two other podcasts. So the the Ed McBain 87th Precinct podcast, Hark, we have finished the main run of books after several years. Yeah. 55 books done in, in, in detail and silliness. But there will be more to come with that. Lots of little things we can spin off if anyone's interested in that police procedural world and, and related stuff. Mm-hmm. And the other podcast I used to do was the Head Ballet Novelty Song podcast, which I have basically wrapped up now because it... Um, no one was listening to the bloody thing. So, oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah, was. it wasn't getting many... Yes, I know, some very, very, very nice uh, supporters and very keen and enthusiastic people. And I did have a few more things planned, but also it suddenly occurred to me that uh, trying to have the band and all these things going and the research it takes, it's it can be quite a lot of work. So sometimes you have to let things just drift away a little bit. doesn't mean I'll never do more of them, but I just you know, moved it off the schedule, as it were. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Good old podcasts. Good old podcasts. So, um, so yeah, so Paul, last time you were here, 
you did make mention of the fact. Now, I think you said, I didn't go back and check, but from memory, I think you said that your parents were folkies. Oh, yes, they were. And they had quite a fine record collection when you were growing up. Um, An interesting record collection, yes, okay. certainly. And, and Not the one that many people's parents would have had. So um, paint, paint me a picture. Okay, so both my parents were in the army. So working class kids from other end of the country you know a good way to get out of where you live is to join the army yeah. essentially and, and that's where they meet in and so they'd be stationed in places like germany and uh, cyprus things like that i mean this is you know we're talking 60s late 60s 70s mm. yeah uh and one of the things that clearly goes along with sort of these army bases around the world is the folk scene as well and i think i can't work out why and i've never really looked into it but i've always just grown up knowing that you know there was folk clubs around because that's what my parents used to do and they both played my dad uh, had a little trio in cyprus and a mum would sometimes play as well and so you get a great sort of throughput of, of touring bands you know just coming to these little clubs so it's not well bands or artists and I think that's the good thing about it. Perhaps is because you can do a folk club on your own, one guitar type thing. Mm. You get a lot of people through, but you also get people like, you'll get the McCalmans and the Dubliners and all these sorts of people. And then you'll get uh, people like this, one of the people we're going to talk to, talk about today and uh, and all sorts. So they also bring their records with them and they bought them. So I grew up with this record collection, which had a few German editions of Beatles albums in, like Odeon copies of Revolver and Rubber Soul and stuff like that. And a bunch of 70s prog that my dad liked, sort of blues blues rock prog stuff, yeah. and then tons of folk stuff. And I think one of the reasons that they like the folk clubs is it's not out of some sense of authenticity of music. And I know some people, for some people, some folkies, it's all about, you know, we're doing these ballads from this period and we're doing this uh, authentic stuff from here and we're doing it in this version and that version. And Actually, I think for a lot of folkies, what it is is about community, sort of people being together, drinking, singing, and laughing. And I think that bit's very important. Mm. And I think one of the reasons I like a lot of the folk records is they almost always have some comedy stuff on them, or they're not very far away from, you know, being outwardly deliberately comic. And so, yeah, a lot of very silly songs and... But a lot of very, you know, nice, passionate people who really enjoy that stuff. Well, isn't that what I'm surrounded with? Isn't there a granted tradition of people like, well, Billy Connolly, famously, Just, yeah. Jasper Carrot, Mike Harding? Weren't they all sort of yeah on the folk scene? Yeah, so because it, it was a huge circuit, so you could get through. You, you didn't just have to do, you know, supper clubs or whatever, you know, chicken in a basket places. Mm. They'd do those, but you could do you could tour all over in folk clubs. Like I say, you could be in. In, in the bases in Germany, you could be out into Cyprus, you could do, do a, a whole circuit and then just start again. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't cost you much because it's just you and your guitar, especially, yeah, so Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly, perfect examples, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you, you just, as I say, you, you told me about this record collection and there was there was the, the LP that we're going to discuss today, which is yeah. um, Spike Milligan with Jeremy Taylor live at Cambridge University. And it's called yeah. an adult entertainment. Uh, this one I just heard from Peter Sellers yesterday. Uh, apparently, during the French Revolution, um, three of these Scarlet Pimpernels got holed up and they got caught by the French and they were there for the guillotine. There was an Englishman, Irishman, and a Scotsman. And the Frenchman said uh, uh, to the English, oh, Do you want to die? He said, Do you want to look at the blade or look down? So he said, I'm English, so I'll look, look at the blade. So they put him up face up, pull the thing. This thing was stuck. So the Frenchman says, uh, This is very difficult because uh, you are free to go, the lord of the country. So he went to a Scotsman and says, oh, I'll do the same as the English fellow, I'll look up at the blade. <laughs> right. He said, is anything worn under the kilt? He said, no, everything's in perfect working order. He said, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this thing got stuck again, folded it, and he says, well, uh, he says, well, it's a lot of the country, you have food to go again. So the Irishman came along, he says, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look at the blade, look up like that, the other fellow's done it, I'll do that too. So he got him underneath, and the French says, you ready? He says, all right. He said, just a minute, though. He said, I think I can see what's wrong with the blade. <laughs> so was this played regularly as you were growing up, or was it just sort of gathering dust? 
I think most of the records were gathering dust because essentially my mum was raising two children and didn't really have time to sit down. And you wouldn't put this on in the background whilst uh, trying to manage two little idiots running around. Mm. But when I got old enough to start looking at the record collection, figuring, knowing what it was, what records were, and looking at them, uh, this was one that stood out partly because it's got a cartoon on the front and it's bright yellow. Yes. Which, which helps. Um, and also because when I did start listening to it, although it's called an adult entertainment, and there is reasons for that, I agree that there is reasons it's called an adult entertainment. A lot of it is nonsense, like in the Spike Milligan sense of nonsense, mm-hmm. which is very appealing when you're quite young. So I definitely listened to, to this out of curiosity when I was much too young to understand probably a decent percentage of it. But it was enough funny stuff in there and probably as well. By the time I would have listened to this, I'd have started to see Spike on other things as well. Um, stuff on TV. Yep. Um, and then a few little things like books of poetry and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps just put the pieces together. But it would have been before I knew about the goons or anything like that. Yeah, I I got given this record, actually. Um, my history teacher at school, I remember him being mad keen on Bob Dylan. So yeah. I think he was an old hippie. And he would always try and shoehorn in. So we'd be talking about I don't know, the, the Boxer Rebellion. And somehow or other, he'd managed to shoehorn in um you know a bob dylan lyric or some <laughs> some yeah, reference yeah. to bob dylan he was always banging on about bob dylan and i you know how you sometimes kind of become friends with certain teachers yeah you, you yeah. maybe stay behind after class or chat or whatever and somehow or other um i must have told him that i was really keen on spike milligan and the goons and whatnot and one day he came in and he into class and he gave me this um lp which was which had been his and he said you you know i don't play this anymore you can have it and it was this like you say this bright yellow uh lp spike milligan jeremy taylor and i went home and i listened to it and i taped it so that i yeah. could play it on my walkman uh and you know what despite it being spike you know ostensibly a, a spike milligan lp I yeah. think I played the songs more than I actually played the bits in between. It probably works better like that, especially if you're out and about listening, because you do have to focus in on, on the speech stuff because it's not like rehearsed um, sketches or anything like that. It's it's him basically deciding what he's going to read next mm-hmm. and and then some little asides and which hint at his wider personality. And yeah, so the songs, I suppose, are just songs like you would listen to on, on a... Walkman, albeit strange South African tinted <laughs> satire thingies. Yes, yeah. I've got a very clear memory, distinct memory of. So I, I grew up in a very large bit of land. My, my, my dad owns a hell of a lot of property. And so there was ample opportunity for me just to, you know, during school holidays or whatever, just to go off and walk and just explore. And I remember very clearly um, a particular bit of the land. I, I was just sort of walking around listening to the Jeremy Taylor song, Crossroads. Oh, yes. See, I've gone back to the original stuff. Then. When the sky that's overhead begins to blacken And the faces that you meet are turning glum when the air you're trying to breathe begins to choke you The chances are you've come to bloody brum <laughs> Where the houses in the back streets sit and crumble While the tower blocks rise up the kingdom come And the old folks peer about them in confusion They can't recognize a thing in bloody brum Hurry up, Fred, it won't be long before the pubs are closed. I'll buy you a pint if only we can get across the road. That's bleak. 
yeah. I would listen to it and then re- rewind it back and listen to it again. And just listen to it again and again and again. And I don't quite know why. I mean, I think it's because most, like you say, most of the songs are quite satirical, you know, humorous. But there's a there's a handful, including this one, that are quite still got elements of humor, but they're quite melancholy. Yeah, very po- well. poignant sort of uh, points he's trying to make. Uh, exactly, which is interesting yeah. on the record because when Spike has to follow one of those, you can sort of hear in Spike's voice like, "Oh, I can't do a joke now." Mm. In fact, he says mm. that at one point. He says, "How can you do something silly after that?" Um, yeah. But yeah, so that, that one that's called Crossroads on the track listing here, even though I don't think the word Crossroads is in it once really, it's yeah all about the changes that have happened in in Birmingham to the point where it's all about growing old and the world changing around you and you're not being able to get past the traffic to get to the pub and complaints and illness and it's it's such a well yeah yeah it's, it's, it's two old men um bewildered at the modern world really. yeah jolly we won the war fighting in a foreign land you tell me now what was it for i don't understand you talk to the youngsters they don't know the hardships we had to undergo and is it any wonder that we want to go slow? And I remember that really moved me at the age of whatever I was, yeah. 15, 16. Yeah. I, it, it, I remember almost the emotion it triggered in me, I remember was almost a kind of anger. Yeah. At, at, at the younger generation that these two old men were sort of yeah. railing against. Um, and that's quite powerful for a song to be able to do that yes yeah no, it is um i mean actually the whole record whether it's the spike bits or the jeremy bits there's a lot of i don't know what the reputation of this record is i don't think it's generally held up as being very good but there's a lot of moments on here where it's actually i find quite powerful whether it's bits of spike's poetry um or some of those little bits in in jeremy taylor's songs that give it a sort of weird emotional weight that it perhaps to look at it, you wouldn't think it'd have. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about Jeremy Taylor? Well, it's interesting. I think Jeremy Taylor's still with us. Yes. Now, but um, so he's he's British, but he, he basically he's famously he went over to uh, South Africa to teach, and while he was there, he was he was making records. But of course, in the the midst of apartheid, he was doing things where he was sort of putting Afrikaans language into his songs. Mm. And the powers that be did not like that. So he's basically writing songs, releasing songs, getting songs banned. So basically everything he got was banned or not played on the radio or whatever. Um, and he did this one called Oh, Please Daddy, which is on this record. Yeah. And that was apparently that was a huge hit in South Africa. Sold more than Elvis in the early 60s, <laughs> which is insane. Uh, but that's the, the weird thing about uh, popular culture is we know america we know the uk and then anywhere else we generally just sort of go what mm. um but mm. yeah so in so he as a young man he had this this huge hit but he annoyed the authorities enough that when he went back to the uk i think at some point to do um to do whatever it was he was doing he basically got told he couldn't go back so they banished him mm. so because he's got all these songs sort of satirizing you know life in in south africa during apartheid and um yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting songwriter. A lot of his songs are, are Dylan-esque, I'd say, which might be why your teacher uh, enjoyed this record. Maybe quite, yeah, because he does sort of he does sort of parody Dylan-style things, mm. uh, as well as more straight down the line folksy stuff. Um, but yeah, an interesting character. And then I didn't realise, of course, because how would you know? Is you know he had his own TV series on the BBC, you know, in nineteen eighty. Um, yeah. And he would have turned up in a couple of Spike's TV series. I think it was in Q, uh, the second series of Q6. It was in Q6. Oh, was he? Uh, right. Uh, okay. Like a, a guest in one of them. He was in uh, an episode of The Last Turkey in the Shop. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and then Spike turns up in, in the Jeremy Taylor show in 1980 as well. And But because Jeremy Taylor's not well-known or famous, really, now, um, you can't find any footage of this stuff at all, really. He mentions on this recording this record 
so he's he's queuing up uh, a song called um, what's it called? Let me just check. Donkeys, the Donkeys Charter. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says to the audience um, that uh, he wrote this off the back of um, a BBC film, and he, he promotes this this BBC program that he says it's it's going to be a, a it's going to be on BBC TV a week on Friday. <laughs> and I checked, obviously, and yes, indeed. Fourteenth uh, of December, nineteen seventy-three, nine o'clock, BBC Two, uh, a program called "The Camera and the Song: Blackpool Out of Season," and it says uh, the camera of Ken McMillan and the songs of Jeremy Taylor. Jeremy Taylor sings, and the camera watches as the sand-grown uns prepare for another bawdy, timeless season of Blackpool rock and donkeys, saucy postcards and beauty contests, and visitors in their millions. It's and it, apparently that program does still exist. But oh, it, right. but so, still in the archive somewhere, but um, can't get access to it, of course. No, um, but yeah, I mean, Jeremy Taylor, I found when I first got the LP, I can't remember, but I imagine I probably would have thought to myself, okay, I'll just listen to the spike bits and just not listen to the music. Probably, I just want spike, but like I said, it was I was I was drawn more to the actual the music. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the other thing that I had in in our house, alongside this in the in my parents' record collection, was a, a Jeremy Taylor album, just one of his own albums. Mm. I want to say one of his own albums. It's literally he's had it pressed up. It's not on a label. It's one he is on Jeremy Taylor Records. Yeah, you know, it's all designed by him and his son, who does a drawing, um, which is sadly missing from the inner sleeve of mine now. I think I probably lost that when I was a child. Mm. It's called Jobsworth. Mm. Um, and I sent you, the, you know, images of that and yep. files and stuff, which has got uh, a couple of the songs which turn up on the Spike Milligan album as well. But it's just Jeremy Taylor and a couple of mates doing it. And my copy says to Maggie with love, Jeremy Taylor. So my mum. All oh, right. Oh, right. And this. Yeah. So this is when he turned up at a folk club in Germany, I believe. And they saw him play and mum clearly bought this record then. Which is it's nice to know that someone was lugging around their own sort of records to the <laughs> to the thing, and so I don't know how well known he was, or whether it was just she saw him in the in the folk club and thought, oh, that was good, I'll buy the record, yeah. Or whether they, I mean, my parents organised some folk club stuff, so they may even have put him on, so I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's it's nice to have a little signed thing from him as well to accompany the Spike stuff to give him a bit more context. Sure, sure. So just a bit of background. So this particular. Uh, recording was recorded on the 2nd of December 1973 uh, and released in 1974. There's there's very, very, very little information out there in terms of background to to these shows. Very mysterious, this. Yeah. Now, the one thing I did manage to find, I I do have access to all the old Goon Show Preservation Society newsletters. Uh And one of the newsletters from 1974 has a, a, a what would you call it a gig review i suppose not not about the not about spike at cambridge but about spike and jeremy playing at the grand theater leeds right um so i just want to read some of this out because it, it gives a bit of a uh, an indication as to you know, you know what what you in the audience would see or or be experiencing okay yeah um a stagehand comes in with a guitar case and two mugs of beer. The lights are lowered. The curtain at the back is raised to show the theatre's 70 feet long loading bay. Two men in denims and overalls are working there. They stop, look aghast, remove their overalls and come forward. Spike Milligan and Jeremy Taylor have arrived. Okay. <laughs> uh, this show is a new improved version of For One Week Only that I saw in November. And so a night of zany comedy begins. Okay. Yeah. And that goes on a little bit about, you know, Spike reading from his books, etc. cetera. Uh, and then it says, Jeremy Taylor is by no means a stooge. His witty satirical songs are tuneful and well sung. I was sorry he missed out the liberal song from his repertoire this time, but Jobsworth was there to make up for it. Spike also did a long Henry Crun impersonation, a talk between himself and Eccles that had been lengthened from the last time, as well as reading some funny children's sayings. He omitted his serious poetry readings for the simple reason people laughed at them. Their absence was perhaps wise in this high comedy evening. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there's bits there that obviously, like, for example, the Eccles 
joke is the um, is the what were you doing in Cambridge buying a tie gag lifted yes, from yeah. the Greenslade story, obviously. Um, and also, it's interesting that he dropped his serious poetry for the for the Leeds performance because he he really he's he's got quite a number of in quotes serious poems that he reads at one stage on the LP, and you can hear the audience kind of struggling with it i suppose is that fair yeah it's it's i think this is an interesting uh this record captures an interesting thing then especially in the context of that review um because yeah he does do quite a bit of his serious poetry even though a lot of his serious poems end on a funny line mm. but the funny lines there sort of just to highlight the you know the points he's making in this serious stuff whether it's about love or about you know environmental stuff or whatever um, and I really love his serious poems, but you can hear him on, on this. He, he does it and, you know, you can hear a pin drop, but not necessarily because everyone's hooked on the listening to him read a poem. I think they're a bit, I feel like I can hear embarrassment yes. a little bit. And it's and I think it's coming partly from Spike feeling embarrassed about exposing himself by reading these poems out and them not getting, I mean, because what do you do at the end of a serious poem? If you clap, it seems weird. Mm. You know, it, it's like... It's quite a hard uh, contract to have with your audience if you if they've come out for a comedy show and then you you sort of say well you know the contract is you react to what I say uh, and now I'm going to say something that's really really quite deep and moving it's like now make sure you all have the same response at the end of it and clap it's not going to happen is it this one I wrote the day that Robert Kennedy was assassinated it's called values the prince is dying give him air. Headlines, crisis, Kennedy shot, the assassin captured, too late, Kennedy dies, the telegrams flow and bury the body in Arlington. But somewhere in Mekong, a prince of battle is blown into bloody meat. No headlines, no crisis, and only one telegram. Yeah, I love hearing them because I love Spike's poems and I love his, his crusading and his campaigning and his, his heart. But yeah, it sounds like it's well. It's odd that they put out this record rather than a rehearsed version of this, from having run it through as a couple of different later ones when it was done, you know, a few more times and in in one week only. Yeah. The other thing you've got to bear in mind, of course, the average age of the audience would be what twenty, because that was yeah, university yeah, students. That's a good point. Um, yeah, because he 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 does that poem about the Robert Kennedy assassination, which is full yeah. of laughs. Um, and you can you can audibly you can almost audibly hear the audience sounding unsure about it, and he... which is interesting because if he'd have done that poem to like an American student audience, because mm. it's essentially a Vietnam mm. poem, um, he'd have got probably roars of support mm. and understanding. But of course, it's a different thing over here. There's a different you know you know it's not like there wasn't protests over here. I'm sure. But yeah, sort of a quite polite Cambridge University crowd perhaps doesn't know what how to deal with that sort of semi sort of rabble rousing sort of notion that's yeah, in there. That's right. And of course, yeah. he'd been at Cambridge. <laughs> he'd he'd gone to Cambridge fifteen years previously um, with Peter Sellers and Harry Seacombe and Wallace Greenside because the goons played a match of tiddlywinks at Cambridge at the Cambridge Guildhall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Famously. Um, yeah. And lost. <laughs> now, you know, this is a great occasion for the National Playing Fields Association, and there are two magnificent teams. So let's waste no time, introduce them. First of all, the world champions, the Cambridge University Tiddlywinks Club. <laughs> Flannel trousers, short sleeve sweater, with the tie of the Tiddlywinks Club taking their position on the right of the stage. They have selected as their umpire their own Cambridge representative, Chris Brayshaw. <laughs> now for the other team who've selected as their umpire a man from the University of Oxford and. <laughs> They are the royal champions, the Goons. And here they come now in an amazing, amazing collection of caps as they jump on the stage there with coloured sort of sheets hanging over them with um, short sleeves. They're waving their caps to the crowd now. It's a fantastic sight. 
The boons in person being treated by Cambridge University. This for the chairs. I'm surprised I would have liked it did sound like he had a, a list of of things that he wanted to talk about or you know, poetry readings jokes and he wasn't going to uh, detract from that he wasn't going to sort of veer off and it would have been nice if he'd maybe said something about you know some little reminiscence about playing tiddlywinks there in 1958 yeah um, but he doesn't the other thing about this this album I've said this before on this show, actually. Uh, there's a poem on here, which well, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a funny little funny little poem called um, well, it's the I call it the Dustman and Chiswick poem. Yes. Okay, and I've said here before that my when my son was born, um, I wrote that poem in this little in this book that we were given. You know, um, like a baby's your new baby. Oh yeah, uh, it's like baby's first word well, bit of lock, lock of her hair type that kind stuff. of thing yeah and i, and I wrote yeah. that poem because for some reason that poem was going through my head when my son was born <laughs> um so it's lovely to hear that of course uh at one point he's he does he does a poem which is spring song 1972 and it's that one it's basically he's talking about a day like today uh, where it's you know blisteringly hot and yeah. um, and it's quite a lengthy poem, and, he, and it's quite quite solemn with a little a little sort of um, barb at the end, if you like. Yeah. And he gets a nice round of applause, and then he says to the audience, "It's very nice to be with young people." Instead of making films and all that shit, <laughs> okay? Yes. And uh, it made me, th- and I thought, "Oh, I wonder." And I went and looked, and yep, sure enough, oh, he'd yes. been filming a few months before. He'd been filming Ghost in the Noonday Sun. Yeah, with Peter Sellers, which uh, is probably, I mean, and I am going to be covering that film later this year, actually, with a, with a guest. Um, it's p- possibly the unhappiest film in Peter Sellers' film career. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Well, I came to the Ghost in the Noonday, so I've never seen it. Mm. Um, uh, but there's a point in this album where Spike's doing some Irish jokes, and he's sort of, you know it's interesting that someone as as creative and mad as spikes falls back on some very normal standard joke forms but he tells some interesting irish jokes he says what one here's one i heard from peter sellers just the other day yes right so i was thinking so i was thinking oh what would he have been doing with with peter sellers in like 73 and then i went and looked it up and then of course ghost in the noonday sun <laughs> comes up um but he, i think they'd also done the adverts for benson and hedges that that year, which Spike hated because he didn't smoke, oh, yes. it was an acti- actively an anti-smoking campaign. Yes, <laughs> um, and ended up giving. There's a little. I found a little interview clip of him saying, "I I did it because I had to pay a tax bill," you know, um, and apparently he ended up giving the money away to like a campaign to save some trees. So right. I don't know what happened with his tax bill, mm. except that maybe that's a reason why he suddenly started doing all these live shows, maybe, mm. Mm. Uh, which may have led you know to this sort of this record and things like that but yeah there's all sorts isn't he he's with peter sellers around this time ghost in the noonday sun being uh chief amongst them i don't think that's the right way to describe yeah, it yeah well the, the, the significant amongst them yeah and he was kind of again he was kind of i think sellers sort of insisted that spike be involved with the film yeah it's interesting spike's career around 73 there's suddenly quite a lot of work he's doing you know as you look at his little list of his filmography and his and stuff, stuff like that and there's a little burst of like slightly more than he'd been doing. So I do wonder if he was paying bills off mm. by having to accept a few things that he wouldn't normally have done, maybe. Yeah. When was Digby the biggest dog in the world? Was that 73? I didn't I, check. I think that's around this time as well, mm. isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, yeah. So that mention of Peter Sellers led me towards Ghost in the Noonday Sun. But like you say, it's mentioned about films, which he spits that, that word <laughs> yeah. out. You know, it's amazing. One thing I was picking up, going back to Jeremy Taylor. So he does, as I said before, he does a couple of songs which are quite melancholy, yeah. if you like. And there's there's one in particular called Young Paul. Oh, blimey, yeah. Which is essentially about child abuse by neglect. Really. Yeah, it is a... And he says something at the start of it about it's been a situation that happened to him mm. or something. He says something... 
I can't quite work out what he means, but it's, uh, yeah, once he says that and then you hear this song and it's like, ooh, it is a strange thing to have suddenly in the in the middle of, where, whereabouts is it? It's on side three, or disc two, side one, mm. in the middle of it to have this song called Young Paul, which is really about, yeah, about abuse, neglect, and, oh, it's it's a very odd thing to put in the middle of an album like yeah, this. I could it's imagine. Hard work. I could imagine Spike off, you know, in the wings or wherever, listening to this, getting angry. Now as Paul grew up, he developed a stutter. His mum and dad were heard to mutter. Now what's the matter with him? He can't control his tongue. He must be dim. And when Paul was 17, he fell in love with a girl he knew quite well. Brought her home one day. Who's that you got down there? He heard Sid say. It's just a friend said paul she's come to call and say hello well you can take her back said ethel we don't want to know and now paul's away in a mental home his mum and dad sit all alone and wonder what went wrong we done our best i'm sure but he wasn't strong It's about a, a, what's clearly a very old couple who've been married for 30 plus years deciding yeah. to have a baby just because it's the, the, they just feel it's the thing that needs to be done. And there was elements of this that I was reminded in a way of Victoria Wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this and also song later, which is a bit more jovial, the uh, Red Velvet Steering Wheel Cover Driver song. Yes. That yeah. reminded me of Victoria Wood. As well. Yeah, yeah. Those sort of when you got those slice of life moments, mm. which is something that Victoria Wood always did so absolutely exceptionally well, mm. albeit with a piano rather than a guitar. Um, yeah, I, I know what you mean with that sort of thing. Um, little moments of observation of behaviour and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it is an odd one that young that song, Young Paul. And I remember looking at the track listing, being a young person called Paul as I was. Um, and going, oh, young Paul. I wonder what that song's about. It's like, oh, yeah. I won't make that my anthem. I don't think. <laughs> but yes, Spike's kind of relying on on material that's tried and tested, isn't he? So he does the the little fly calypso, which he also had done uh, famously on the Parkinson meets the Goons uh, show yeah. in October '72. Um, uh, he does. He, he quotes a few lines from. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, attribute these, but there's there's a couple of sort of jokes lifted from goon shows, like the uh, buffalo hide joke. Um, oh yeah, and, there's and, a, a Min and Henry moment, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you kind of you kind of get the impression that his material, he kind of it was very hurriedly put together and gathered together. Yeah, I think so through this because a lot of I mean the thing that binds most of this together is his readings from Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall, mm. which is brilliant. Um, and I'd have again, I'd have heard this before I read that book. I read those books, his memoirs, when I was quite young. Um, but I always remember that first, that first bit of it, which had the line: "From the ceiling hung a forty-watt light bulb that, when lit, made the room darker." <laughs> yes. Which I think sums up Spike brilliantly because it's an absolutely excellent, silly joke, but it's also really understandable. You know exactly what he means when yep. he says that. Yep. Um, and I remember that being, because that's so early on the record, that being one of the things that made me go, oh, I'm going to listen to the rest of this. Because he'd only published that one book of memoirs at this point. Um, and his second one hadn't come out yet, I don't mm. think. Mm. So it, it's nice to hear him do a load of those those readings and, and, and put put voice to the, you know, the sergeants and the bombardiers and all those people in there as well. Because what I'd, I also discovered whilst doing my research for this, of course, in 1973, when was it in 73? I think it was in April 73. He's had This Is Your Life. Oh, yes, of course he has, yes. And um, and so he's seen all his old army comrades. Yeah. He's written he's written his memoir. He's It's just about a couple of years or something at this point. And then he goes and see all his old army comrades and he has This Is Your Life happening. And yeah. it's all about, essentially, it's all about his time in the army more than it's about anything else. That that this is your life occasion, yeah. With him constantly butting in, uh, yeah. Uh, so a, I was going to say Eamon Holmes, Eamon 
What's his name? Eamon Andrews. Um, Andrews is valiantly trying to sort of plow on with, yes. with the show. And Spike is just qu- you know, quips and butting in. And at one point, yep, drops his trousers. Yeah. Uh, when Peter Sellers walks in wearing, Peter Sellers wearing his um, habitual uh, German army helmet. Um, yeah. Because it's around that time that that's that's what he was doing. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Benteen turns up. Harry's on. I think Harry's v- uh, video feed. Yes, he's yeah. on. Yeah, he's on the tape from Swansea. Yeah, um, and Spike's just on top form, but but it must yeah, have been a nightmare trying to, you know, trying to be a. Even when Spike was on chat shows, when he just wouldn't let the, the host get a word in, it must have been so difficult. It's interesting how when uh, Eamon Andrews accosts him at this uh, reunion and, and sort of this, Spike, this is your life. Spike's like, what? And Eamon Andrews has to literally grab his elbow and march him down to the set. Mm. You know, mm. don't let him get away. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could tell he's like, I can't let him get away because otherwise this show is not happening. And <laughs> um, manages to get him sat down. But like you say, yeah, then Spike just starts essentially just burbling constantly throughout. Yes. Which is clearly a coping mechanism of like, well, I'll, I'll, I am listening, but rather than just just listening, I've got to listen and react. Um, yes. And Pe- so he, people yeah. expect me to be be funny, so I'm, you know, I've got to be on. I've got to be funny. Yeah. Which and it's it is interesting as well, of course, knowing what we know about really the lasting effects of, uh, you know, is is PTSD. Um, which is mentioned here. So he's at an army reunion at some point, you know, Eamon Andrews just casually says, you got shell shock, turns the page, next thing. It's like what we know now about it and how he was dealing with it and the the ups and downs of manic depression as well. Mm. It's uh, it's interesting to see looking back at that stuff. And I think listening to this record as well, the, the few little asides on here where he's sort of like he's talking to himself a little bit, mm. Mm. Um, sort of telling himself off for reading certain poems and not, yeah, it's... Is a yeah, it's an interesting time to be Spike. Yeah, like you say, I reckon you're right about the tax. You know, this was this was he he put this or he did these shows because he needed to pay a tax bill. So it is like he's he's just dragged together readings from Adolf Hitler, my part of his downfall, poetry that he you know he he already had. Uh, there was a I think for me the standout spike bit on this entire lp is or lps is um when he recounts his trip to france he took me to a hotel called demolition by kirkpatrick and sons (laughs) the hotel porter raised his hat and lowered his trousers real french hospitality the hotel had been built in 1837 and 1838 they'd added an east wing In 1839, they added a West Wing, and in 1840, it flew away. (laughs) Everywhere you went, you could hear the voices of the English tourist. Carry your bags, huh? I had... (laughs) I I had words with the manager. I said, I'd like to talk to you about the ceiling in my room. He said, what about it? I said, I'd like one. (laughs) Here's the... uh, The sort of hotel, if you plug your razor in, the electric lights dim. And he said, I hope you have a good memory for faces. And I said, why? He said, there's no shaving room in the bathroom. <laughs> anyway, next, next morning, after a breakfast of porridge and frogs, plus a steaming bidet of coffee, I, I, It doesn't mean thinking about daddy, does it? I joined a group of impoverished English tourists on the 30-something all in tour. We were driven to the Notre Dame Cathedral with whips. I mean, when you break it down, it is a grumpy man moaning about having to go somewhere where he doesn't really understand the language. (laughs) But it's it's nicely put together as an anecdote in itself. My favourite stuff's the army stuff, but like like we've just said, it's it's out of the book. So... At one point, as we're getting towards the end of the show, he even just starts reading out last words of famous people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for the longest time, this this confused me. Because <laughs> he said at one point, King George V, bugger Bogner. Yes. <laughs> did you know any? Did you know about? I actually looked this up yesterday, so it's the first time I found out. So um, it's possibly apocryphal, but apparently King George was about to turn his toes up. 
yeah. and someone someone he, he seemed to rally slightly and somebody suggested that he would soon be he would soon have fully recovered and be able to recuperate at Bogner Regis and, and apparently he said bugger Bogner and then passed and then, on and then died. <laughs> Moved, shuffled off this mortal <laughs> coil no I think that's one of the most sort of famous uh, last words famous famous last words um but yeah probably a, a apocryphal because i mean even if he had said it who would write it down it's like a king <laughs> don't write that down um make it more interesting uh yeah don't know it is weird when people do that sort of reading out stuff but um it reminds me of like um you remember jasper carrot used to do australian insurance claim forms and he'd read out like hilarious comments from australian insurance claims forms as part of his act hmm. so he hadn't written it he just selected some mm-hmm and I remember once getting a joke book, a big yellow joke book it was, and, it, and that had that stuff in it as well. So it was essentially, I had the same source material as Jasper Carrot. You know, I, had, oh, I can't do all this Jasper Carrot thing. That's going off on too much of a tangent. <laughs> but that, that idea of just finding something funny and delivering it yourself. So Spike's done it with this famous last words bit that he's clearly just entertained him. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's quite good. And at one point he gets his trumpet out and plays it rather yeah, he does. lousily and, and Jeremy accompanies him. Um, and it's it's the rheumatism blues. Yeah. yeah. Oh, ah, yeah. <laughs> and there's one daddy on this, by the way. Uh, do you know about Do you know about daddy? When he he says he refers to someone as daddy. Um, I, I wasn't there. Didn't Peter Sellers get in the habit of say, calling someone daddy? Um, I think he that might have been from Noonday Sun. Well, possibly. Like well, because I, when I interviewed Jane Milligan a couple of months ago. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned this because he, cause Spike went through a period of calling everyone daddy, sort of mid 70s. Oh, right. Um, How strange. And Jane said that was because, you know, because, yeah, for a while he did do that because he was a jazz man. You know, it was, it, was, it was kind of jazz. It was, you know, he was cool. He was, you know. Yeah. How I was listening to this at the ages I was listening to it, I, I'm trying to. Did I, think, did I think I understood it? I'm sure I probably did. But, <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah. The things that always stuck out to me, like you know, without going back and revising it, were uh, Jobsworth Red Steering Wheel cover and Spike doing things like the Mixomatosis poem, mm. which is like another sort of like shock to the heart type brief, like environmentalist message. Yeah. Uh, the the army stuff as well, and then I like he's doing uh, when he's doing a bit about the children and the, the letters they send him. And in fact, he mentions Jane on the record. He mentions he does, yeah. uh, Jane Milligan and, and all those occasions of having the kids in the paddling pool, which I'm pleased to say the kids in the paddling pool on the opposite side of my house now have shut oh, up good. while we're recording this. So you won't be able to hear any screams in the background. Um, so yeah, I like the children's letters because I like, I like uh, Spike's funny little children's voice <laughs> that he does yeah. when he's reading yeah, them out. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's when he's talking about his kids. <laughs> I'll just say it, okay? Um, when I first heard this, LP, there's one gag or joke in particular that I thought was the cleverest thing and sophisticated, yeah. such a sophisticated joke on, on so many different levels. And it's not at all. It's, it's, it's the <laughs> bit where he says, well, one day my son came into the room and said, dad, what's a lesbian? Ask your mother. He'll tell you. Yes. Um, yeah. And I remember using that in the, in the, at school on friends, that line. You know, and yeah. you wouldn't use it now, but at the time I remember thinking, God, that's funny. That's clever. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, we've got to be honest about the fact that this, this is called an adult entertainment. And actually that's probably more relevant a title now than it is, than it was then, because yes. actually a lot of what there's, there's bits on here that you would definitely not do now. You would edit them mm. out or not say them in the first place, ideally. Um, and even some of Jeremy Taylor's stuff, because he's using... I say appropriate with speech marks around it, appropriate vernacular for the settings of his songs. Mm. It, but nowadays it's, it's very hard to listen to. So stuff in Archipelese Daddy, which I know in, in later years, he changed a particular word yeah. in it to, to something else. Um, yeah. So there is definitely, a, yeah, there's, I, I probably shouldn't have been listening to this as a child, but there, I like I say, there's nonsense in it, and he does a load of kids' poems in it, and poems about silly animals and things like that. So it is appealing to it. To I mean, he kid. does drop the f bomb at one one point, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, as well. Um, and towards the end, it's almost like 
they've reached the end. It's almost like Spike's just decided, sod it, I'm going to do it. And he does this, puts on this really excruciatingly bad Australian accent and sings this song called Australia. Yes. Um, and I was listening to it. And do you know what it made me think of immediately? It, it reminded me of the end credit theme from Blackadder 2. Oh, right. <laughs> Bits of it reminded me of, of that. Australia, Australia, we think of you each day. And they receive, you know, so they 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 finish with what do they finish with? They Good do. night, Irene. Good night, Irene. Yeah, uh, uh, and and rapturous applause from the audience. Yeah, I do wonder how much they would have recorded and then cut out because it's a long record. It's two discs anyway, but it's it's like an hour and three quarters of of material. Um, so that's a lot of stuff, and I wonder how much more they they taped because that would have made a long evening, really. So uh, I can't imagine there'd yeah. be much more than that. Well, I was looking at, I looked at that. You remember I read that review that person had reviewed yeah, yeah, the yeah. Leeds show. That was, t- apparently that was two and a half hours at Leeds. Blimey, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I did look, yeah. So around this time, he does turn up with Jeremy Taylor. Like you say, he, he does a one-off show here and there. And then he does that for one week only. It sounds like they had a piano player with them as well for that, though. Yeah. Uh, as well. So he clearly they, you know, tested the show a little bit and then, and then tweaked it and, and and did whatever it was and yeah i think all oh, that's very interesting that <laughs> that they would do this really long show and then someone would have to make a decision i wonder how much he was involved in the decision making of once it was recorded because it was recorded by an engineer called ray prickett and a producer called alan a freeman both of whom had worked together for donkey's years essentially on like patula clark records and lonnie donegan yeah. uh, and all, so all the quite big names for the period that they were working. And, and I think Alan A. Freeman was the producer of the Hancock recordings that came out on vinyl mm-hmm. as well. So whether it was just up to these two to go, all right, what's, how are we going to cut it together? How are we going to put it? And whether Spike even listened to it afterwards, <laughs> I don't know. I know that they, they did put out a promotional, promo-only um, single. As right. well. So this is on, on Spark Records. Yeah. Um, and apparently they put out a promo single because I've seen the label on, on Discogs, I think it was. And yeah. one side is um, Jeremy Taylor doing Lift Girls Lament, which is very funny on mm. this. And side one is a track that they've chosen to call The Erection, which I think, <laughs> which I think is the section of the record where he's talking about religion in the army and then putting, oh, up, putting yeah. up a tent. The uh, Catholics had occasional visits from a father holy thing who seemed... <laughs> Horrified at the thought of any soldiers having sexual intercourse. Oh, be careful of the strong drink, my sons, he warned. Bear in mind it excites the sexual appetites. Therefore, if you see a comrade drunk, bring him home and bathe the parts in cold water. (laughs) This is all true. But that would be very odd if that had actually been a single that they'd have tried to release. But I think it was just a promo for the... For the yeah. for the record, uh, it's really very odd. I wonder how well it was received or how well it sold this LP. Oh, I dread to think. I mean, I know it eventually came out on a music for pleasure version, mm. uh, so a lower cost one. And someone put it out on tape in the nineties. I mean, I think presumably they just got the rights to a load of stuff mm-hmm. and, and put out like what a th- comedy club range of, of recordings or something. But yeah, because I can't find, there's barely anything out there about it, really. The only thing I could find that's like a follow-up to this was from the Cambridge Theatre Chronicle of May 1974. And it was about when they released it. So it must have come out on the 22nd of May 1974. It says, Archgoon Spike Milligan hosted a reception at the University Arms Hotel with folk singer Jeremy Taylor to mark the release of a double album, this one. Um... Spike made a military entrance dressed in a blue denim jacket, buttoned up wrongly, and a flowery shirt and inspected the guests who lined up in military ranks. He had spent the day in Cambridge being filmed by a BBC crew. In the afternoon, he visited the market and briefly served behind the counter of Mr Andy Gray's record stall. Oh. <laughs> so that's how they, uh, that's how they uh, launched the record. Right. Oh, pulled out all the stops then. Yeah, yeah. To, <laughs> yeah. Little or no fanfare. Yeah. It's on Spotify as well. 
yes, this I didn't realise this having spent hours trying to digitise the sodding thing. Yeah, me uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the uh, yeah, Cherry Red Records uh, seem to have the copyright on the on on the streaming version. But clearly, that's a rip from vinyl as well because you can hear the pops yeah. and crackles on that too. Mm. So if anyone does want to listen to it, it, is on all the streaming things. You know, it's got some interesting her liner notes um, in the sense that it's uh, yeah an adult entertainment spike milligan with jeremy taylor live at cambridge university then it lists the musical content the running times and then three columns of just gibberish keyboard hitting nonsense yes <laughs> so i suspect what probably happened is someone said spike you're gonna write some liner notes and he sent them this and it is literally yeah. just it's 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 just madness it's just hit the keyboard a lot send them that um, I suspect it's somewhere between a joke and also uh, somewhere between a joke and just not wanting to do it. And some somewhere somebody has declared that genius as well. I should imagine so. Yeah, uh, the mark of a master. Yeah, um, mm. yeah. And then, uh, as far as I know, after he did this recording, a couple of weeks later, he st- started starring in uh, the Treasure Island um, play at the Mermaid Theatre. Oh, it was Ben Ben Gunn. Is that right? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, mm. uh, it was a Bernard Miles That's one, right. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, so Paul, thank you very much for for bringing this along for us to talk about. Well, um, you, you can't ignore it. It is there. It's um, yeah, like we say, we don't know its reputation really because there's there's just no reviews of it or anything. I would say, you know, they say about such a, a you know, dullards say this but the white album could be edited down to a decent single album if you just oh it's the it. bloody beatles white album exactly yeah. but we, we, could, could you do that with this i'm sure you could yeah um, i was thinking about that actually idly thinking about whether you know you've got to dedicate like i say an hour and 45 minutes to listen to the whole thing whether where you could actually chop it down into a single a single disc edition and i'm sure you could i don't know what you'd lose perhaps a couple of the longer jeremy taylor songs and you would tighten up some of the poems where he says them so fast you can barely tell what's happening mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that but yeah i don't know it's a curio and the reason it's important to me like like we said at the top of thing is it was one of my ways in towards the goons it was one of my formative uh, experiences of realizing that there were older people out there who could be very silly and i think that's important thanks again to paul as paul and i discussed at the beginning of the show uh, his band good grief have got a new album out shake your faith and i'm going to end the show with um, a track from that album which is called high to low which is a very Kurosawa-influenced title, if I may say so. And if you enjoy it, please uh, check out the rest of the album. I will put details in the show notes. See you soon.